Brought to you by North Memorial Health, where customers are treated like family. That means a big smile when you walk in the door and making sure your visit is as pleasant as possible. It's just like your family treats you. Find your healthy family at northmemorial.com slash family. Welcome to another episode of the Access Vikings podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer, joined by Ben Gessling and Michael Rand of the Star Tribune. Thanks for waving, Ben. It's bye week edition. Vikings bye week. We're going to be talking about where the team sits at three and three. Uh, at this bye week, a uh, lot of lot of interesting things to get to. We just heard from Rick Spielman, who did not want to talk about his job security or Kirk Cousins' contract or really anything business-related. But uh, he did say a couple of things that we can get into about the cornerback depth, the offensive line, and will do all the talking about the other topics uh, instead. But Ben, you were on the Spielman call with me, and I, I thought it was interesting that he starts off by talking about Yes, we'll be without Patrick Peterson. We hope to get him back by the Packers game. Uh, but, you know, he's optimistic about X, Y, or Z. Um, I think the not having Patrick Peterson deserves a little more conversation than that. What, where is this kind of secondary sit at and the confidence level now moving forward when it's Dak Prescott and the Cowboys coming to town out of the box? Well, I mean, the other thing he said, I think that stuck out was, I think we have enough depth at corner, which he has to say because you don't want to just sit out there and tell everybody in the world, Hey, we'll give up. We'll give the shirt off our back for a corner that can play, but I'm not sure that the unbridled optimism from the general manager on his cornerback situation will last a terribly long time. If Dak Prescott is able to play in that game, if he's healthy, I think that's an awfully tough challenge. I think, the ones that come after that are not much easier. And Dallas is probably the toughest passing game you're going to face with C.D. Lamb and Amari Cooper. Amari Cooper had a big night against them two years ago, um, largely against Mike Hughes, who also came up on this call today. Um, but Amari Cooper gave them a lot of trouble in that Sunday night game in 2019. And I think certainly with him and C.D. Lamb, they're going to have a lot of trouble in this one. I think Zeke Elliott adds another development development to that, which I don't think Zeke Elliott played in the game last year when the Cowboys came in and beat him. So the cornerback situation is, has been um, Patrick Peterson being their best and teams not testing Patrick Peterson as much as they go other places. So if, if you're now picking between Breland on Cooper or Breland on Lamb and then Dantzler on the other one, I think that's going to be a tough go. So we're going to find out pretty quickly if any of what Spielman said about being optimistic is viable or true or, or uh, anything to bank on. Yeah. And it ties into with another party was asked about how do you feel about this roster? Just a, your you know seventh year with Mike Zimmer and just kind of where it's at. And he had mentioned, I'd hope eighth. we have some eighth year, excuse me. Applies when you're having fun. <laughs> and he had mentioned, I hope we have enough depth and you need to have guys that kind of step up in that pipeline. Well, now is when we're going to find out if they have that at corner and, and Spielman mentions uh, Cameron Dancer. He mentions Harrison hand. He mentions Chris Boyd. These guys are going to have to step up. Mike, do you think that's enough or would you like to see them make a move potentially and acquire somebody uh, for, for what's going to be three key games against, as Ben said, Cowboys, Ravens, Chargers. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say what move you would make that would be, you know, that would be financially viable, but also would be much of an upgrade. You know, I, I don't have a 
ton of faith in in their depth. I mean, this is another thing we've, you know, another example of what we've talked about a lot on this podcast was kind of how top heavy this roster is, you know, the, the best 10 or 15 guys on this roster are probably as good as, you know, the, the top 10 or 15 guys on, you know, probably in the top five of that in the league, I'd say in terms of the, the best players on your team. But when one of those players gets hurt, you see the, the trickle down effect. And I think there's some, some positions they're able to withstand it better than others. Dalvin cook goes out. Alexander Madison's a reasonable facsimile of Dalvin cook. I think, you know, Dalvin's a better player. Obviously he's paid accordingly, but corner, there's a pretty big drop off between Patrick Peterson and your second best corner. So now not only do you have a problem in your base defense, you're talking about, you know, you're playing nickel and you're, you're bringing in some of these even less tested guys against any, any team with any kind of wide receiver depth is going to have a lot of opportunities to throw the ball And Dallas threw the ball all over new England. I mean, new England kind of dared them to pass, but yeah, I think this is, it couldn't have come at a worse time. And, you know, Patrick Peterson's a guy that you, imagine will stay healthy now he's getting older but he never missed a game because of injury so this is a little bit unlucky in that regard i'm guessing part of what attracted them to him was that durability so now you're going to find out what what can you do without these guys i think it's going to mean they're going to need to score a lot of points Uh, they're not going to be able to stop a lot of these teams and the vikings secondary stop a mike mccarthy coached passing game it's like it's like 2011 all over again Ben, we do know that with Breland and Dantzler as the projected starters moving forward, that the Vikings have probably the best Twitter using cornerback duo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the the two that have probably gotten some uh, closed door meetings with Mike Zimmer about their social media habits. Although the the Breland one, he kind of defended, even though the Breland one was uh, a little more unseemly than the the Dantzler one. So, uh, yeah, it's um, and we'll see what it's like after this one. If, if the criticism uh, was getting to Bashad Breland earlier in the season, Sunday night against the Cowboys, uh, we'll give him opportunities to refute that or maybe earn more of it. We'll have to see. But it's a, a tough matchup under the lights uh, next Sunday night. Yeah, you don't get to play Sam Darnold every Sunday, uh, unfortunately for any defense. Um, let's talk about Mike had mentioned, you're going to have to score a lot of points maybe. And that's a good segue to talk about Kirk cousins. Cause Ben, you wrote, um, for Monday morning about how these two minute drills of his, this, he's kind of been comeback Kirk a little bit. Um, it leaned into it much so more than he did maybe in 2018, uh, in the beginning of 2019 before that playoff game against new Orleans, <clears throat> I'm curious at what point does his play maybe change the long-term outlook? for him because I think the talk going into the season was succession plans for Kirk. How do you move on from Kirk and through a three and three start, he's been pretty much the bright spot of this team so far. Yeah, he has. And it seems like this is the probably the discussion in at least half of the NFC North right now, because I'm sure the Packers are trying to figure this same thing out, albeit at a much higher profile level, but yeah, it's going to be an interesting question because Spielman talked about it today asked about cousins contract which has a 45 million dollar cap hit next year he said we you know we plan for this stuff we have some challenges but we've had some challenges in the past and we've been able to overcome them so probably you know rob brzezinski's role as um, harvey keitel's character in pulp fiction will come up once again next spring go fix this for us rob but i 
it was interesting to to think about all that because it it almost sounded to me like yeah this isn't a surprise to us we don't have to do it and maybe that's a message to cousins camp that would probably if you show any type of trepidation about your salary cap situation you're sending a message to them that yeah we're open for a another extension another uh deal that would give you some more guaranteed money into the future in exchange for lowering the cap hit i do think on a larger level my sense has been that the paying cousins what you're paying him and not getting a lot of flexibility in terms of a long-term deal or any type of a discount is wearing on people in the organization to the point where if somebody else was ready to take that job and do so at a cheaper price tag, they would consider that. The problem they have is that Kellen Mond has not been active for a game. It's not likely that he's going to be active given his own progress and given the fact that Cousins doesn't get hurt. And the other piece of it, as we saw on Sunday, is good quarterbacks are not easy to find. Competent quarterbacks are not easy to find. Sam Darnold was the third pick in the draft a few years ago, and he looks in an NFL game like he's still doesn't have a lot of idea what he's doing or is able to hit receivers in stride and, you know, receivers drop passes and that kind of thing too. But Darnold and Jared Goff, who we've seen the last two weeks, and Baker Mayfield, these guys were top five picks in the draft that don't look like they're capable of carrying a team. So it is certainly within Cousins' uh, right to say, look, yeah, I'm expensive, but there aren't that many of these guys that can play this position even at this level. So sorry, but that's the going rate. And that's the decision you have to make, I think, is do we want to keep paying for this or do we want to take the risk that something cheaper isn't going to be the prospect that turns into the, into the next great guy and the next NFL cheat code that we all hope it is? Yeah, Mike, so is, is that Kirk's move? Just tell the Vikings, sorry, but you got to pay me more now. Probably. I mean, that's been kind of been his move since, you know, since he got out from underneath the the franchise tags in, in Washington. Right. I mean, he's, he's played this all pretty well and he's, and this season on the field, he's playing really well. I mean, he's, he's putting himself in that conversation where, you know, before the season started, I was more in the mode of let's you know, let him, let him walk, let it, you know, just eat, eat whatever happens next year, trade him in the off season. If it's, if it's viable and that could still happen. Like say he has a good year, but they finish seven and 10, which is certainly possible. And they decide, okay, this isn't working. Like even if he's playing well, the roster needs enough of an overhaul that this, you know, you can, he's still got value. You can, you can move on from him without it being a, you know, a complete sell. Um, I still think that's viable, but if you want to be competitive, absolutely. Like if, if, if they had traded him in the off season and just said, we're going with veteran X and Kellen Mond, uh, they'd probably be two and four or one and five right now just based on how these games have gone. So it's, it's kind of, it kind of will be determined by what the status of this franchise is after this season, I think, and how well he plays in the next 11 games. Yeah. That, that's a good point about kind of what his production leads to as far as wins, because we saw that against Arizona where, yeah, Kirk can do exactly what he's done against Detroit and against Carolina, which is at the end of the game, put you in position to win. And it doesn't necessarily come through. Uh, it almost didn't come through against Detroit. And even though he did everything right in the first 58 minutes uh, or whatever, then had to do it again. Might not have come true in Carolina, yeah. if not for a coin flip. 
so if, if that's the case where your defense could let you down, special teams could let you down. Yeah. Ben, if they get to the point where sure Kirk has 110 quarterback rating going to a pro bowl and is doing well, uh, but we're not as a team, we can't do well. Maybe the franchise wises up a little bit and thinks, you know what, maybe it's just not worth this kind of price tag when we have to rebuild a little bit more of the roster, especially as we, as you've written about Ben so often that, all these one-year deals are this, this roster is going to be at a point where you could kind of start, I don't want to say from scratch, but you could kind of strip it down to the foundation a little bit. I think they, whatever they decide to do, they do have to get to a point here where you make a decision about what you want to be, because this roster right now is constructed in a way, I think, and I think we probably all have had this sense a little bit that let's keep ourselves in the mix so that everybody can keep their jobs. I mean, if you are going to win enough games this year that you say, we're going to keep everybody, we're going to keep Mike Zimmer, we're going to keep Rick Spielman, we're going to keep Kirk Cousins, I think you have to get out of this mode of short-term thinking because you put yourself in this constant spot of having to pay top dollar for things to try to keep yourself afloat if you don't know that you're going to be able to build with a four or five-year trajectory on things. So, and, and some of that has been the way the, the Cousins negotiations have gone. He has preferred these short-term deals. He has extracted a lot of leverage from those. And, and he certainly, within his right to do that, I think it's been a sound business strategy for him, certainly. But you also put yourself in that spot because you're, you've been in win-now mode really since 2016. 20, I mean, you win the division in 15, and then you kind of say, we're going we're gonna to keep at it. We're going we're gonna, to trade for Sam Bradford. We're going to yeah. keep, we're going to get Kirk Cousins. We're going to do all of these things to solidify that position so we can keep ourselves competitive. It gets expensive to do that. And the free agent list, which Rick Spielman alluded to this morning, includes Peterson, Greenland, uh, Rashad Hill, Weatherly, Nick Vigil, Xavier Woods, D.D. Westbrook, Mackenzie Alexander, Everson Griffin. Uh, and then you kind of go on down from there into, into some of the backups, Sean Mannion, Amir Abdullah, et cetera, Jordan Barry, punter, obviously. So I'll, there's certainly the ability to blow this up. But if you decide we're keeping Cousins, we're keeping Spielman, we're keeping Zimmer, is there going to be the incentive to blow it up? Or are we just going to continue to do this? Well, we got to win because nobody knows what the future holds and, and we'll make a decision in a year. I, I think at some point that becomes unsustainable. And if you are going to keep these people, you have to say, we're keeping you and you can have – three or four years to reset this thing into something more sustainable. Yeah. And I think that that list um, you read off of, that didn't even include Barr and Richardson. I don't think you're um, right. Yeah. Or Hunter, really? or Hunter, right. Don't they have to make a decision on Hunter too? Sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Richardson is up. Um, they don't show up on free agent lists yes. at the moment because they have voidable deals and the, the deals will void. So Anthony Barr, Sheldon Richardson, that's a good point. Both those guys should be on there. And Daniel Hunter has like an $18 million roster bonus, which the Vikings won't be paying. I think that one's a, a non-issue because he's playing so well. He'll, they'll, they're going to pay him. But again, that's going to be really expensive. So, And they've talked about, Spielman alluded to the cap going up. It's not going to go back to what it was. They still have a lot of money, the NFL does, that they have to make up for from last year. So it's going to go up, yes. But this like influx of cash from these new TV deals is not all going to hit next year. Yeah. So there's a lot of decisions, a lot of decisions, a lot of uh, ways um, kind of choose your adventure, whatever way you want this roster to go. And, and it's interesting because 
Spielman was pretty, he just shut it down. He didn't want to talk about his job security. He didn't want to talk about conversations with ownership and they're, they're legitimate questions. When, when the team sits there in 2019 and you're coming off a very disappointing ending to the regular season and you've got the Wilfs issuing statements publicly reaffirming their trust in the leadership general manager, head coach. Um, and the one playoff win has really been the only thing since then that has made you think, yes, this can work. If you count the seven and nine year last year, you count three and three, you count that playoff loss. This team is what? 10 and 13 and 13 in their last 23 games. So I think these are legitimate questions of who is going to be making those decisions that Ben is, is presenting that are going to be uh, out there next year. And is it going to be Rick Spielman still? Is it going to be Mike Zimmer as the head coach? Or are they going to change what they do on offense and defense by moving in with new coaching leadership or whatever? So there's just so many ways this could go. And, and the, that's what makes the, the last 11 games, the back half of the schedule so intriguing because if Cousins does well, but the team doesn't, it could change so much. And, and if Cousins doesn't do well, that means the team's not going to. And it could change so much about the direction of this team. Well, I, I think the other piece of it that was was sort of interesting that he got into a, a little bit was um, the, the draft class. I mean, we have not seen much of this draft class on the field. Uh, certainly we saw Christian Darisaw last week. But other than that, we're not seeing a lot of these guys. And, and he kind of talked about, this is a, this is a long-term process and, you know, it's because we have all these guys on the roster and we have all these established veterans. Yes. But he also said with all these free agents, we are going to need some of these guys to step in and play probably next year. I'm curious how you get from where we are now, where we haven't seen almost any of these guys to a year from now, expecting them all to become starters. And I guess there's some, uh, precedent for that in the sense that when he was talking today, I was looking back a little bit at the 2020 class and they are starting to get some contributions from that group with, with guys like KJ Osborne. And obviously you've seen Ezra Cleveland on the field and has, has started every week. And you Justin Jefferson kind of speaks for himself, but you are starting to get a little bit more from the middle to late part of that draft. So yeah, I I'm curious about, this rookie class when we've seen so little of it and what the second half of this year holds for that group. It, that is interesting too, about you. The precedent is KJ Osborne, which is just, you don't see that very often a guy going from zero snaps on a particular yeah. side of the ball to being an immediate impact. Number three, you know, basically starter with how this offense is run with through three receivers. Um, but yeah, James, James Lynch is one guy who's kind of coming on and, 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 um, producing while Michael Pierce is out. Uh, DJ Wanham's one where they've, I find it interesting that they've basically got Everson Griffin in that starting role. And not only do they have him in that starting role, there really wasn't much of a rotation. That looked like 2019 no. where it was Daniel Hunter, Everson Griffin, the entire game. Griffin played 85% against the Panthers. Um, Wanham played 50%, but mo- much of it was in passing downs where he was an inside rusher working various different roles. So yeah, the question Griffin is how, a lot of base snaps too. I mean, it, oh yeah, whether staying at right end in the nickel, but he was out there in the base defense at the beginning of the game. And I don't, I think we were sitting there watching at the beginning of the game on Sunday. He didn't come off the game off the field for probably the first two, three series at least. 
Yeah, and he didn't come off the field really much at all throughout the game. And I think the the quite that's a good question of like Griffin is that kind of stopgap player yeah. right now where he's yeah. so good that at 33 you have to put him on the field because you have to win right now. But the long-term thing that's good for you is developing a guy who could be there next year, be there the year after that. And you can't count on that with a 33-year-old at Everson Griffin. So I just think that's an interesting – the defensive end situation is an interesting look into that exact kind of mindset where how do you – kind of develop these defensive linemen when next year you don't necessarily have uh bar Richardson Griffin, all these guys coming in, coming back and, and being at that same level. So this is a little bit of a, a down the road question and maybe it's easier to answer later, but if they were to clean house and I'm speaking, especially about the GM spot here, how attractive is this job? Because you have, Daniel Hunter, you have Justin Jefferson, you have young offensive linemen that if you like them, they're here for a while. You have Dalvin Cook for at least a couple more years, but you have a decision to make on the quarterback. You have a decision to make on most of the defense. I, I wonder how many people would look at this job and say, yeah, sign me up for that when I have a an expiration date on my quarterback with a contract and a lot of other things to figure out it it's a as we get into this situation and maybe they'll win enough games that all of this will look foolish and they'll say what were you guys worried about we knew we were fine the whole time but yeah i wonder kind of as they have to make decisions how attractive will this job be given what somebody would inherit i think it's probably a reasonably attractive job maybe less from a immediate roster standpoint and maybe more from a you know pretty stable ownership at this point a a group that's shown that you know again it's a a capped league so you can only do so much but they 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 spend the money they don't just pretend that they're spending the money up to the cap this is real money over the cap yeah and they you know facilities wise you've got a brand new stadium a brand new you know facility for that so there's like some intangibles about the job the market's good the fan base is good they sell out the games like i I think from a yeah yeah i think when you i think from an outside perspective, if you looked at this job, you'd say, can I win here? And despite 60 years of evidence to the contrary, that says you can't win a Super Bowl here um, or 50, how many, many Super Bowls there've been. Um, this is a market where I think you could, you know, you could come in here and it, I think this would still be an attractive job from a lot of those, those standpoints. Now there probably would be some, if they did clean house, there probably would be like a year or two of cap pain where they're just like, okay, we're just going to, we're going to take all the hurt right now and know that we're going to get better in 2023, 2024. So that it wouldn't be a, a fit, a quick fix. Uh, but if they weren't expected to do a quick fix, I think, uh, I think it would be attractive. Yeah. It, I guess it's, it's all relative, right? This, this isn't Detroit or Cleveland where there's like uh, organizational rot where you need to kind of step in <laughs> and, and worry, you know, like, yeah. like it was just interesting to hear, when um, Kevin Stefanski was coming back to Minnesota for that Browns week and hearing Andre Patterson talk about, I coached in Cleveland and, and he did, it was just for two years in 03, 04 as a position coach. But he just said, there's just certain elements. He said, you need to fight when you're over there to yeah. turn around that organization. He said, Kevin has uh, found a good way to navigate 
kind of how you turn that around. And this subtext of all that is ownership. It's the people in charge who make awful decisions most times, who who might who micromanage, who do all those things, all the things you've heard about Jimmy Haslam and the Browns yeah. ownership, just horrific. And so I, I think, or Washington, for instance, um, um, with the football team over there or Jacksonville, Jacksonville would be good because you've got Trevor Lawrence and you think you've got more of that kind of clean slate to start with. And maybe that job would be more appealing, but Detroit would be the, uh, an organization too, where ownership has just made horrendous decision after horrendous decision. And maybe they've got finally something that could turn them around there. But I think Minnesota comes from a place of we haven't knee jerked and fired the head coach every, every turn. Uh, We have been somewhat relevant and we do pay out. Do we have the facilities and all that kind of stuff? I do think there is a baseline that is higher. Their floor is higher as an organization. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good point, but yeah, at the same time, it's not, Hey, here's, here's a number one overall pick Trevor Lawrence come and, you know, mold, this this talent into the next Andrew Luck or something. We they don't have that kind of an attractiveness to them. So I think it, that's a fair question in that front. Um, I think too. Where where do you guys think about where the Vikings currently stack up in the division? I, I don't think we got I want to know in the division. <laughs> that's as true. we heard today, you beat the Lions. <laughs> they beat the winless Lions. Um, Just barely. But, but with with Green Bay looking kind of vulnerable, Mike and I were talking about this before the podcast, but. When you look at those first four games out of the bye week, Green Bay obviously being the fourth one on the on the back end at home after the the three, um, Green Bay is kind of vulnerable. They don't have Jair Alexander. They haven't had Zadarius Smith. That defense has looked pretty bad. Um, it's just Rodgers to Devonte Adams. It seems like on offense as it kind of always has been. And so I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on how you think the Vikings stack up in the division after six games. Um, ben, Ben, what do you think? Well, the other thing with the Packers is their schedule, and, and some of this is just rotational stuff in, in the sense that the NFC North is a really tough slate this year with having to play the entire AFC North and the entire NFC West. But the Packers schedule the next few weeks is as nasty as the Vikings, if not worse. It's Washington on Sunday at home, then the old uh, Thursday night on the West Coast game that Mike Zimmer loves so much. They go out to Arizona after that. So they're a week from Thursday night. They're in Arizona. Then they're at Kansas City and then home against Seattle that might or might not have Russell Wilson back by that point. Then it's the Vikings at U.S. Bank. And then it's the Rams at home. And that's all before their bye week. So you are facing Kyler Murray, uh, Patrick Mahomes, possibly Russell Wilson, uh, the Vikings who can put up some points if they need to do it and the Rams before your bye week with all of the injuries that they have. So to the extent that they're vulnerable, yeah, I I think the injuries have, speaking of Mike McCarthy teams started to look a little bit more like some of those teams that the Packers had that were banged up to that degree. And that offense has not lit it up the way it did last year. So I, I do think if you look at these next four, I think on paper, that's the most winnable game of these four, simply because they have given Rodgers a hard time at U.S. Bank when there are fans in the building and he can't hard count the rookie corners. If, if Patrick Peterson is back, I think that helps. Um, yeah, I, I, I think they are certainly vulnerable in that game, but I also think in the division, when their schedule is that tough, the Vikings have their own issues with that, but it's not like the Packers 
it's not like you can count on the Packers running away and being it's seven, eight, nine wins by the time you get out of your stretch and maybe you're only at four or five. Yeah, I, I still think Green Bay is pretty clear pretty clearly the best team. I mean, it's, you just have Aaron Rodgers still. He's he's going to win you enough games that I think they're the division. They're going to, they're going to, they're almost definitely going to win the division. I, I agree. They're a little vulnerable. Haven't played as well as they could, but they're five and one still. I mean, there's, there's five teams in the NFC. I was just looking at the playoff picture that are five and one or better, which leaves the Vikings at three and three kind of, you know, in that pretty squishy, you know, six to 10 range. And, you know, two of those are playoff spots now. And I tweeted, I think at the start of the year, even before the start of the year, something about how I can't wait till week 17 when the Vikings go to Lambeau and they're in the, uh, in the hunt graphic on the playoffs. That's just kind of what I feel like this year is going to be They're They're going to be kind of in that could make it, could not make it. But uh, I, I don't have a Any ton good. of, I don't have a ton of confidence that they're going to exceed the Packers this year. I mean, you, could be proven otherwise based on what happens. And you're right. That's that schedule for green Bay is harder than I realized. Cause even out of the bye, I think they've got the Rams Ravens and Vikings one more time in yeah. there too. Yeah. The, it could for the Vikings come down to the annual uh, beat the bears at us bank or go home test, which they have not passed very many times. Yeah. The bears are an interesting team. I guess. How do you guys feel about them? Because they're coming off, you know, being reminded that Aaron Rodgers still owns them. Um, but did he but, say but, something about that? He did. I think I missed I that. He did. Um, but they, they were coming off back-to-back wins before that against the lowly lions, but also they beat the Raiders, um, in Las Vegas, uh, 20 to nine, right before losing to green Bay. And they only lost to green Bay by 10 points. That was a relatively close game. Green Bay did not run away with that one as much as Aaron Rodgers um, kind of gave off that impression. So what do you guys think of Chicago with, with Justin Fields and, them being banged up too a little bit and having their top two running backs unavailable last week. I think the bears are bad and they won't win more than seven games. Oh, there you go. There's a take. I like, I like that. Why, why is that? I you just, I look at him and I don't have any confidence in him. I just, I think fields is going to be good eventually, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to see it yeah. yet. Um, I just, I think the, the defense has had enough slippage where they're not what they used to be. They are what they they are what we thought they were, I guess. No, no, to, to, to quote Danny, I, I just don't think they're a very I mean, good team. I think they're kind you're of running with what Packer fans say about the Bears all the time. They're a team in transition. You're going to go with the Bears still suck. I think it's <laughs> um, to to that point, the uh, the most passing yards the Bears have gotten in one game was 209 from Justin Fields against the Lions. Uh, even when Andy Dalton started that first game, there wasn't much. Mm going on with that passing game. So if David Montgomery's not turning yards out for that offense, they're not a whole lot. And then defensively, it seems like they're still pretty good. I mean, you still got Akeem Hicks. You've still got Khalil Mack um, uh, doing things uh, as, as it were. But um, I, I just, I don't know. I, I think it's always tough for the Vikings at Soldier Field. So that's one where you can never just say, yeah, yeah, the Vikings should definitely beat the Bears because it hasn't happened that way. All right, let's get to some Twitter questions. we got the mailbag every week. We uh, accept and open up the mailbag for your Twitter questions. You can send them on Twitter to us. You can find those Twitter handles at startribune.com. We got one question from Adam wants to know, what are our best options at corner? We did talk a little bit about this, but he wants to know what the exact plan is going forward. And I would say that it's going to continue to be Bashar Breeland and Mackenzie Alexander working the outside and nickel. Uh, and then Cameron Dancer replacing Patrick Peterson in that base spot. And 
I guess we didn't talk much about Dantzler. What do you, Ben, what have you thought of just his season so far, how he's played uh, in the two games that he's really gotten the most run? Well, he's been better. I mean, it, it was, in, it's been interesting with him because as you're talking about it, I, I kind of said to myself, we're not talking about Chris Boyd anymore. And, and during training camp in the preseason, it almost looked like Boyd was going to be ahead of Dantzler. It, it certainly, I think on the depth chart at one point he was, I think, yeah, Dantzler, you know, played awfully well in the first time out and he's going to have opportunities. But the, the thing that I still just wonder about with him, the, the fourth down on Sunday, the second one, when DJ Moore is matched up one-on-one with Dantzler, gets an outside release and Dantzler didn't get any jam on him um, as he came off the line. He, he wasn't able to, to redirect him at all. So Moore gets a free release. He's just going to lose some of those battles to guys that can run. And if DJ Moore is beating him, then you're going to have those matchups where we saw it last year in the first game. We saw it a number of different times that if he isn't able to get you redirected and disrupt your timing off the line, you're going to be able to beat him downfield. And I think that will remain the big concern, especially in that first game out of the bye. And probably with Devontae Adams as well, you're just going to have some of those where if he gets beat up the line, he's going to be in trouble. So I think that puts something of a ceiling on how much you're going to be able to get from him, at least at this point. Yeah, Mike, what's your confidence level in the cornerback group right now? I mean, it's it's not great. You've got I mean, Breland, actually, I was just looking at Pro Football Focus. Breland had a really good game, according to them. He did have the interception against Carolina and it says of the six of the six targets that were coming his way he gave up zero receptions for zero yards I wonder how many um, passes were dropped <laughs> yes there is there is some of that uh there was a lot of the dropsies happening with the with Carolina but, but at least in that game you got a chance to see the uh, the feast side of of Breland with with that interception on the uh, very first snap I think uh, of the game from scrimmage at least so no, I guess my I'm curious to see how they deploy these guys. Do they does Breland basically does he go on one side of the field? Does he follow does he follow somebody? Do they is it just a strict left right thing with those guys? Yeah, I'm, I don't think my, they can trust anybody else enough to have him shadow. Do you, Andrew? No, and, and we haven't I don't think Mike Zimmer typically does that a lot. I think it really was more of a Xavier Rhodes specific thing. I don't, I don't know. I'd have to go back and see his Cincinnati Dallas stuff, but I don't, I don't know if we've seen that happen very often. And Xavier was the kind of guy where I think the coaches felt he was best. If you could just say, don't think, just go follow that guy. And I honestly think that helped him and and it helped him and it helped him with certain matchups because he was the longer corner who could uh, match up with Julio Jones, Odell Beckham, whomever. Andre Hopkins. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Great game against him in 2016. That's right. So I just think because because we all know how much the coaches talk about defensively, their coverage is ask defensive backs to think a lot about matching route concepts. If this guy goes this way, that means you need to get this guy. It's not just kind of man-to-man is not just we line up and we get these guys all the time. So, and with this situation, I don't think Breland or Dancer has been good enough for you to say, okay, now we're comfortable moving you on formations left and right. Corners get used to having a a sideline as a boundary and knowing that I have basically a whole extra defender on this side or this side of me. And I think moving them is a little tougher than maybe we just think of like, well, yeah, just have them follow and move around. Um, yeah, when so you become the field corner, it's a tougher job than if you're the boundary corner. So I just think that, you know, in general, um, 
I don't think they're going to do that. Yeah. A long story short, I think they're going to have Dancer one side, Brillo in the other, and then they're going to have those guys play the base. And I don't think McKenzie's going to be an outside corner. I think he'll just come in on nickel. Um, that's just kind of how they've done it too in the past. Anyway, uh, we got one question here, Mike, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Um, somebody asked what record should we need to have at the end of these next four games to still be in the race for a playoff spot? So like worst case scenario, what should the record be if this team is still going to be considered a contender? Like, I think if we're being realistic, like, you know, even if they went, if they went one and three, they wouldn't be like mathematically eliminated, but then you're talking about your four and six. And even if the schedule does get more forgiving at that point, it's not like this, it's just a bunch of layups the rest of the way. And you're, you've, you've got so little margin for error. You know, we saw them come back from one and three to get to three and three. We saw them come back from one and five last year to get to six and six. So it's not like a, a couple of losses puts them out of reach, but I think if you're being realistic with, again, how top heavy the rest of the the conference is so far, and with you know some other teams sitting there at three and two, three and three, right now, I gotta feel like two and two in this stretch is is kind of what you need to do to feel at least good about your chances. And it's, I don't think it's I don't think it's crazy to think they could go two and two. I think this team can play with just about anybody. They can play down to just about anybody too. But there's two home games in that mix. Uh, the chargers are good, but they've been pretty inconsistent this year. I don't know what to expect from them from game to game. Um, you know, Baltimore is going to be hard. I think that's a, a tough matchup for them, but you know, beating Dallas, I don't think that's out of the question beating green Bay here. I don't think that's out of the question and beating the chargers. I don't think that's out of the question either. So I think if you can somehow get two of those three or somehow win at Baltimore, I think that makes you feel good about yourself. Two and two. Yeah. Ben, Mike saying there's a chance. Yeah, and the the thing that helps too is the home games are NFC opponents. So if you're going to take two of those, you would 100% take Dallas and Green Bay over Baltimore and the Chargers, who I almost called San Diego. And I'm still doing it. They should still still be in San Diego. That team should be in San Diego. Um, So I'm going to go with it. I, I would rather, I mean, I think it's more important for them to beat Dallas and Green Bay than Baltimore and San Diego. So uh, I think the other piece of this that comes in later too, though, is that we're kind of now keeping the 49ers out of that mix of, of quote unquote tough games because they're two and three at the moment. But I don't think that's necessarily a, a layup either. I think going out to the West Coast is tricky. I don't know if George Kittle will be back by that point, but Shanahan has had a lot of things that have given the Vikings trouble, even when the 49ers haven't been quite as talented. We, I mean, that really was the first team that we saw use the, you know, the Kubiak Shanahan, so to speak scheme to really give them trouble in 2018, that, that opener, they gave them a lot of trouble and that kind of laid the, the template for beating that defense the rest of the way. And then the other thing to point out is that you have a stretch in December slash January where it's, Two outdoor cold weather NFC North night games with the Rams at home sandwiched in the middle of that. And this has not been a team typically that has gone and won outdoors in December, especially when it's cold. And there are, you know, a couple of exceptions to that. There's the one that beat the Packers in 2015, and that's a almost completely different roster at this point, but they have not gone and won a lot of those super cold weather outdoor games on grass. I mean, yeah, they won in, in Soldier Field last year. They won in Green Bay in November. But 
the, the, the cold weather ones in December, I think have been a trouble spot and they typically have struggled in December because they just have had games where they look worn down. So I think you got to come out of this two and two because you can't sit there and look at the schedule even after that and say, Oh, we're going to get hot and win, you know, another five games of what's left after that or something like that. I, I think if you're five and five, especially given the fact that one of those NFC wildcard teams is two games ahead of you already, you, you feel like you're in the mix, especially if you win the NFC games, I think you're in the mix, but anything harder, anything less than that, I think it makes it awfully hard to come back from. Yeah. If you go one and three in these next four and you're sitting there at four and six, it makes it really hard to lose at Chicago. The, the three you were talking about at Chicago home against LA at green Bay. Makes it really hard to lose all three of those and then collect nine losses, be eight and nine, and be sitting there and hoping that that's enough to get a seventh, you know, uh, spot in a wild card or something like that. Especially because that also means beating San Francisco on the road. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah and, that means giving them that win and then yep. giving, giving them the win at home against Chicago at the end, too, which also has never been a given yeah. um, game for them. So you're, you're absolutely right that that's a, that's a really tough stretch. December 20th to January 2nd, they play those three games at Chicago, home against the Rams, at Green Bay. Um, that's, that's a really tough stretch for them too. So I do think that, yeah, being two and two at least gives you that kind of buffer of like, well, if, if we kind of fall off at the end there, we might still be in that wild card mix. Um, cause what do some. we think it takes nine probably? I think nine's the minimum. Yeah. Even at, you know, nine and eight, it's probably, it, that, that gives you a reasonable chance. And, you know, the other, the other point of it too, is if you go two and two against this stretch, probably gives you a certain amount of confidence because you've probably played. Yeah, pretty well to go two and two against these four teams. So it probably gives you the belief that when the schedule softens up, you can rack up some wins too. But if you go one and three, you're like, well, are we, are we a good football team? Like our coach keeps saying, or are we not? Yeah. So let's say they win, win the two NFC games at home that would put them five and five. Then you beat Detroit. You beat Pittsburgh. That's seven. You probably take at least one of the bears games. That's eight. And then you take your pick from, at San Francisco, at Green Bay, home against the Rams. If you all you have to do is win one of those, um, I, that's feasible, I think. Yeah, so I think we talked ourselves into two and two in this stretch to be to feel good about your chances at least. Of going we talked ourselves into Vikings tacos. Yeah, it's four to three right now. It's uh, if you see the the next three for the Gophers are much more forgiving than the next three for the Vikings. I'll tell you that much. Gophers go Maryland, Northwestern, Illinois in the next three. So at least they yeah, they lost to Bowling Green. I wouldn't get too they high did. on your that, was, that one hurt. That one guy. hurt. I was just gonna say at least they don't have to face Bowling Green again. The mighty, I, the mighty I, Bowling I Greens. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, we got a question here from there, Mike. We got a question here from M that wants to know, and I don't, I don't know if this is M from MI6 James or Bond? James Bond. Yeah. Um, we got, is, is the Kirk Cousins we're seeing a result of an improved offensive line or because he's improved as a quarterback? Ben, what do you think? Hmm. I, I think some of both. I, I think the fact that he's had a good line in front of him, we haven't really seen it in his four years in Minnesota. So to say he's improved, it may just be back to what he had in Washington because he typically had pretty good lines there. I do think he is processing things a little faster, getting rid of the ball a little faster. So he's always been the guy that we've always said it, that if things are going right around him, he's pretty good. And 
His line has been better, not great, but better. And he is in the same offense for the third year in a row for the first time since probably his time, his early days as a starter in Washington. I don't even know if he had three years in the same scheme at that point. So I think a lot of things are set up right now to get the most you possibly can get out of him. And some of those things are paying off is probably how I'd put it. Yeah, and I think there's a couple things. Uh, Mike, what do you think about this, too? There's a cu- couple things that stick out to me about Kirk's play, and one of them is that he currently ranks, in terms of how pro football focus tracks your average time to throw, he currently ranks third through six games behind only Ben Roethlisberger and Tom Brady with an average time of 2.42 seconds before getting oh, yeah. the ball out. And then Sunday, he was fourth among all quarterbacks in Carolina with 2.34 seconds before getting the ball out. So he, this offense too has kind of met him halfway of just kind of getting him in situations where that ball is coming out. Yeah. I think that's a good thing for him. I mean, if he has to go through, not like he can't go through his progressions, but I think where you'd see, you know, the, the criticism of him holding the ball too much before was, you know, trusting that he could get to his third read, but the offensive line isn't there. And then, you know, starts to break down like we saw against Cleveland where he just doesn't have the time. And then, you know, that he starts getting happy feet. And even when he does have the time, he's not showing up like he has the time. And, you know, I think the, the, the thing that we've seen real growth and Ben, you wrote about this earlier this week is just in those kind of high leverage situations. I just don't think we saw him deliver like that early in his Vikings career. It just didn't feel like that was what he was doing. And even going back to last year, there was a couple of like, just complete, completely botched drives where all they really needed at the end of the game was a field goal to, to, to save a win or rescue a game. I think Tennessee sticks out to me. Tennessee was the one where Zimmer called it chaos afterward. And it was, it was terrible. It was like, there was a botched snap, aborted play. There was, you know, this things just weren't working, you know, Tennessee had like hit a bunch of long field goals, but you know, they were still in position where a couple minutes left, all they needed to do is like, you know, get, get into range and make the field goal. But you know, they didn't even get close and this Dallas year has been a different story. What's that? Dallas was the other one last year. Yes. I remember writing about it that he had missed a chance to win the game and then kind of looking at all the stats about that. And, and uh, then the small sample size stuff came out on fourth quarter comebacks, which is fair. I, It's funny. I haven't heard that from those people this week when I wrote about how good he's been. So I think you know. Seattle last year, he might've even had a chance to, to rescue them in the final like 30 or 40 seconds after it Russell wasn't Wilson even that much them. time. It was, was like it? Okay. 20, 50, 20 seconds. And okay. I, I don't think they had much to work with, but yeah. he didn't do anything there either. But yeah, that one, I kind of, when I was looking at this week, I, I threw out a little bit cause that one didn't seem quite as fair to say, no, that's a missed opportunity. This year it's been like every game, like you led, you know, two drives against Cincinnati really that, you know, one to tie it and one that was, potentially going to win it before Dalvin cook fumbled. He had, you know, the drive to get him into position against Arizona and then the last two weeks bailing him out basically multiple times. So that to me is where I've seen progress and, you know, whether that's a function of him having more trust that he's going to be able to make the throws he needs to make, that could be part of it too. Cause like we've talked about, he needs to be comfortable and confident to be good. And what's, what's interesting to me too, is how Clint Kubiak has evolved this offense in the third year, the Vikings are running this scheme. And I do think Ben, Mike, we both talked about it last year. We talked about it when this offense struggles, it seems like their whole play action bootleg game wide zone has just been figured out. It's okay. If you just go five, six wide, you put down these bare fronts, you start crashing the edges on these backside bootlegs. Um, You can just kind of swallow up the offense that way. And now we've seen, Clint Kubiak get away from play action a little bit 
this year, but then Sunday they went back to it and they went back to it in a way that you never saw, at least I never saw under Kevin Stefanski or Gary Kubiak where they're doing it out of the shotgun. And I thought that was really interesting change to this offense where Clint spent all last week talking about how we got to be less predictable on offense. And now what he did was he put Kirk back in shotgun, almost looking like a John Day Filippo offense, except this time he's faking a handoff and then finishing the boot action and still as if he were coming from under center, running that boot action and then doing the same deep over routes to Thielen and Jefferson. That kind of evolution of this offense helped spring them against a really good Panthers defense. And, and a, that goes to coaching and that goes to that with, with what Kirk is good at, they need to continually evolve that because sometimes defenses do just figure out that kind of play action game. The other thing they did too, that was interesting kind of to that point, they lined up in a lot of heavy personnel groups and still went shotgun. They had a couple of plays. I think they were in 13 personnel or 22 personnel that they split CJ ham out wide. They had CJ ham in the slot. I think on a couple of plays and I think had cousins in the shotgun. Well, the Dalvin cook touchdown. I think they had Mason Cole in there as an extra tight end. I think that was a shotgun handoff. So it was a lot of it. I think was, we want Carolina's base personnel on the field and we want to have these heavy groups that we can then throw out of because we trust that we can still make plays that way. And, and they were able to do some of that last year with the play action stuff where they'd run a lot of that on heavier personnel groups, harder to pull all of that off in quite the same way. We don't have Irv Smith and probably needing a, a couple of updates. Like you talk about Andrew, where it's cousins in the shotgun probably helps out and just gives it a different look and, and also puts him six yards back from the line of scrimmage protects him that way. But yeah, they did put a few different things in there on Sunday that I think have helped. And, and we'll see if that continues as Clint Kubiak goes here. Yeah, because you can tell, too, on some of those shotgun bootlegs, you can tell the backside defenders are not expecting a, a bootleg. When you're yeah. lining up against a shotgun quarterback, you're thinking that's his spot. That's the mark I'm going for. And when they go for that, it really helps set up those backside blocks when you had a Conklin or a CJ Ham or whomever kind of protecting on that backside. I found it interesting, Ben, you brought up the Cook touchdown run. I love that Clint Kubiak. Um, that was the first run that Clint called. This was like the end of the third quarter. It was the first run that Clint called out of shotgun all day. Um, they had one previous run before that, but every there it was 14 out of 15 um, were passes on the shotgun plays before that. And then that was basically a total tendency breaker where the defense went too deep in the red zone thinking it's shotgun, we got to cover. And then Cook kind of slips underneath and, and drags a guy into the end zone. So and you take I, a defender out of the box and he's able to make a couple guys either make a miss or carry him with him. And that gives you a matchup advantage. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that they just weren't doing enough of where I went back and looked at some of the, the Detroit Cleveland games. It was just under center, under center, third down shotgun, under center, under center, third down shotgun. These runs are going nowhere and these play action passes are going nowhere. And you could just see the predictability in some of that. Um, Mike, I want to get your thoughts first on this. Yes. Are the Vikings closer to one and five or five and one? Who are they? That's a good question. It's a good way to frame kind of where they are at the bye week. I mean, from, from a practical standpoint, chicken finger six, nine, they are three and three. They are neither closer to one and five nor five and one. They're exactly in between those two. If I just, if I had to put um, a, a fine point on it, I think they're a little bit closer to five and one than they are to three and three. I just think if you look at the way they've the games that they've had to bail themselves out to win the last two weeks, they were far more in control of 
than the games they lost in the heartbreaking fashion in the first two weeks. So that that's how I arrived at that conclusion. I think, I think they've earned their three and three record um, by and large, but I think they could make a case that they're, they're closer to five and one that they've, that, the sum total of what they've done so far could have added up to four and two at this point, as opposed to three and three. And Ben, I know you opened our last podcast by saying they're three and three. I did. Yeah. I think I said that on Sunday, uh, the old Bill Parcells, you are what your record says you are. Um, if, if we're going to kind of use it as a, a test of degree of difficulty or how they looked or whatever, um, they, had two games the last two weeks where they were in control until a late collapse. The Bengals game, you probably flip the other way and say the way they played, they didn't really deserve it in the first place. So yeah, probably four and two is fair. Um, I, I think that's probably if we're saying games that they got what they deserved, I, that's probably about where you'd put it. Uh, I think in terms of, Pythagorean win expectation, which I'm, I know Mike Zimmer looks at, uh, they are 3.2 and 2.8. So a little above where they should be, but not much. So I, I think, yeah, I, I think four and two, I would, I would buy that. So I guess that would put it closer to five and one than one and five. I, I think they've, they've certainly played well enough in, and even in the Browns game, probably put themselves in position to win it. I, I just think, this conversation is probably a little bit of a a hard one to to put a ton of stock in just because I think we're going to have a, a pretty good idea in four weeks. We, we won't be asking who they are. We're going to know by the end of this, I think, pretty with pretty high levels of certainty who they are. And if the question is, who are they, Andrew, I want to get your thoughts too. But if the question is, who are they? Um, my answer is that they're a team that trusts their defense more than their offense, but they're a team that should trust their offense more than they trust their defense. Plus one on that. I do think it's hard though to, what do you guys think of, this is a kind of a different question, but judging Mike Zimmer's conservative nature a little bit, is it more acceptable that he's been doing this against Baker, a bad Baker Mayfield, bad quarterbacks, bad Baker Mayfield, bad Jared Goff, bad Sandra. If he still coaches that way against Dak Prescott and the Cowboys, I think that's more of an indictment than what we've seen against the last three games. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, you, you probably figure you have a little more ability to be conservative and, and do it that way against these types of teams. I guess my question is, why is it so important to be conservative? I, I don't know why that's yeah. such a high value. And I get all of the, I mean, he has a strong belief, and I wrote about this a little bit Monday, that the cumulative effect of the running game is not something that you measure on a per play basis. You're not sitting there looking at what level of production do I get from this one run in the second quarter? It's how does establishing the run set up things later in the game in terms of thinking two or three dot moves down the road in the chess match, or how does it affect a defense's psyche or the fatigue level? How does it also affect, affect my offense's psyche? Cause we've heard offensive linemen talk about this and we've heard people in the organization talk about this. We want to go forward. We don't like having to pass set all the time and have a defender trying to get past us and be on our lap. So there's some of those things that go into it that analytics can't measure. But on a pure empirical level, your best players on offense 
are Dalvin Cook, and this is in no particular order. Well, it probably is in a particular order. Dalvin Cook, Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen. Dalvin Cook's your best, but Dalvin Cook can also get the ball in the passing game. Two of your three best players on offense are wide receivers. So if you are not having them touch the ball, you're you know cutting your cutting your nose to spite your face, I guess is a phrase. But I, I don't get why there's such a an emphasis on that other than Mike's discussion of do they not trust their quarterback? That that almost has to be the the explanation for it, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I do think when you see the offense struggle the way it did and at times struggle historically, it leads to that kind of mistrust a little bit. But and we talked about it too, the, the confidence in the offense after the the Lions win, the you like that, the grabbing Mike Zimmer by the sweatshirt. You know, I just kind of had that undertone of like, I know that's my trademark. You like that, but no, really, do you like that? See what we can do when you put the game in our hands yeah. kind of thing, because that was the same game where they, they scored three times in the first half straight out of uh, uh, the opening possession. And then they sit on the ball with a minute and a half left and two timeouts and don't do anything. It's that same kind of rhythm where like, if you had just given them the, the green light there, maybe they tack on another score and maybe you're not having to chase at the end of the game to try and win and close it out. There is that element of it too, but Zimmer's philosophy and approach is going to get really tested when you face these good, now you're facing good offense. Yeah. These are going to be good quarterbacks you're facing. There is no more Baker Mayfield, Jared Goff, Sam Darnold stretch. Yeah. I mean, it, it almost seems in some ways like he is waiting for bad Kirk to come back that he thinks the, the, the strip sacks and the fumbles and the interceptions are going to come back and bite them again. I, and there's always a chance of that, I guess, but the play on Sunday that he didn't get the strip sack when Brian Burns was about to take a swipe at his arm there, I, I thought was probably a little better sense of, of him having some pocket awareness. It's still not great, but I think it's been better. And overall, the turnovers have not happened in the same way. In the last 16 games since their bye last year, so they're they're one to five in that bye. They lose to Atlanta. Cousins is awful through a pick on the first play of the game. Played 16 games since then. Here are his numbers. In those 16, he has a completion percentage of 69.3%. Nice. Yeah, very nice. Um, it's run for 4,559 yards, 37 touchdowns, five picks. That's a passer rating of 110.3. Has uh, been sacked 34 times in there. Has only fumbled. Uh, has fumbled 10 times, and that's that's always been part of it. Lost four of those, so some of that's luck is playing into that a little bit. But the main thing is completion percentage is great. Has thrown for a lot of yards, thrown for a lot of touchdowns, and only five picks. I mean, I, I think that's the the biggest thing. Thirty seven touchdowns against five interceptions in a sixteen game stretch is, you know, that's the kind of stuff you expect from Aaron Rodgers. So, um, are the num are they coming? Are some of these coming in garbage time or when they're trying to rally? Yes. Is the the leverage of all of it great? Probably not to the same degree. But when you're getting that kind of production, I just I feel like you need to to let Kirk cook a little bit. And Kevin Stefanski's Browns currently lead the NFL in fourth down attempts. <laughs> so I'm just throwing that out there. All right. We'll land the plane here. Thank you for checking out this episode of the Access Vikings podcast to answer the question of the Vikings five and one or one and five. They are three and three. We'll find out who they are coming out of this bye week. Maybe you should get off the podcast. <laughs>